0: Violence is when you hurt people to get them to do what you want. An ideology is when you convince people to want the wrong thing. This opposition, between two fundamentally distinct kinds of power, has often been seen to exhaust the forms of power that capital exerts over us. But, argues Søren Mao, a young communist philosopher from Denmark, to grasp some of the fundamental questions of our era. Why has capitalism not collapsed? Why can we not escape it, and how does it seem to strengthen itself through crisis? We must understand a third form of power. That form is what Marx called the mute compulsion of capitalism, and what certain calls the economic power of capital. This power can often seem abstract, elusive, and yet its basic idea is extremely simple to grasp. We are compelled always to return to the market for our survival, because capitalism does not let us grasp the means through which we might live without it. Cernan's work is similarly abstract, dealing as it does with capitalism in its ideal average, rather than in its specific instances, but his account starts very concrete, with what he says all humans have in common, their vulnerability, their capacity for surplus production and their use of tools. It's from these very practical beginnings, rooted in what we do every day, that Surden builds his systematic account. My name is Richard Hames, and on this episode of Navarre FM, I spoke to Surden about the role of anthropology in Marxism, how the French philosopher Michel Foucault couldn't finish his own project of analysing power because he rejected Marxism. And how capitalism persists through it all. Suleiman, welcome to FM. Thank you for having me. So you're the author of Mute Compulsion, a Marxist theory of the economic power of capital. The reception of the book by the standards of Marxist tomes has been pretty extraordinary. Universal acclaim, uh, huge excitement among the the mass ranks on Twitter. Uh, When can we expect a GQ profile? When will you be made? uh, Time person of the year. How does it feel to be kind of the the young face of Marxism?
1: Well, uh, the reception of the book has been very overwhelming, and I'm surprised how many people have read it. And uh, it's really nice that uh, apparently a lot of people find it useful. That's really great. And also, yeah, a bit overwhelming sometimes.
0: What's the problem you're trying to solve in the book? A kind of standard account, a Marxist account of power, might go something like this, you know. There's a. This is, of course, going to be very stereotyped. It's very simplified. Uh, don't write in. In the beginning, there were extremely violent processes of like enclosure and enslavement, uh, and then there was a kind of establishment of a relatively calm era that is enforced by ideology. And then, throughout the world, as capitalism expanded, it had to go through the same violent process of bringing, uh, bringing societies into capitalism. And then, occasionally, ideology fails, possibly because of a capitalist crisis. And then we have to go back to applying violence to bring people back into line. This doesn't capture, of course, all of social reality. And so I'm wondering, what work does your concept of mute compulsion or economic power of capital do to explain something that is left out of this account?
1: Well, I think that in the what we could maybe call the era of classical Marxism in the late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, most Marxists tended to emphasize the violent power of the state uh, when trying to explain how capitalism expands and reproduces itself. And then I think from the interwar years and onwards, especially in the context of working class support for fascism in Europe, um, more and more Marxists started emphasizing the importance of ideology. I think one of the underrated thinkers of ideology in that period is uh, the German uh, psychoanalysist uh, Wilhelm Reich, uh, who wrote some very good things about how important ideology is for reproducing capitalism. But there has been a tendency in Marxism to focus a lot on these two forms of power, violence and ideology, and and basically assume that, that power basically has two fundamental forms, violence and, uh, and ideology, and that they can play different roles in different Periods and uh, in capitalism in different uh, places in the world. But what I claim in my book is that what I call economic power or mute compulsion, with an expression borrowed from Marx, is a third form of power, a form of power that can't be reduced to violence and ideology because it doesn't directly address people, it addresses uh, our social and material environment in a way that forces us to do certain things, uh, which is something different from how ideology and violence works. And this is not a, a new idea. It's very well described in Marxist writings. And lots of Marxists have written about this. I just think that nevertheless, there has been a tendency to focus on violence and ideology, which also had certain historical reasons. But, you know, it's also important to uh, see how uh, economic power is something else and that it's also an important thing to understand for, and if we want to understand why capitalism hasn't collapsed. Should we associate
0: the different forms of power with different phases of capitalism? So the way I kind of suggested it earlier was that there was a sort of violent beginning and then there's a kind of yeah. ideological sustainment, and then perhaps you're saying there's also a kind of mute compulsion, or is that, are they all there all the time, or is there, in some ways, an ahistoricism to the way in which you encounter it, because you're trying to yeah. get to this abstract core of like the fundamental idea of capitalism rather than its actual particular historical instances.
1: Well, actually, I'm not sure about that. I'm I, I don't have an answer to that question. And I would, I think, Marx sometimes seems to, to suggest that violence tends to be replaced by economic power in the history of capitalism. And then at certain points, certain critical points in the history of capitalism during crises or uh, uprisings, and uh, yeah, like imperialist expansion, as you mentioned earlier, then it it can become necessary again to rely more on violence. But I'm not sure that's a fruitful way to look at the history of capitalism. And I think there's a danger of underestimating the importance of the continuing importance of violence in the reproduction of capitalism. And I mean, it's obvious that without the threat of violence that the police and military represents that it wouldn't be possible to maintain private property. So the violence of the state and violence more generally uh, continues to be an extremely important feature of capitalism, which is always there and which is necessary. So my project is not to claim that mute compulsion or economic power has replaced other forms of power or that Uh, violence and ideology are not as important as people say they are, something like that. It's just, it's more something like, in addition to violence and ideology, which are both necessary forms of power in capitalism, there's also a third form of power. So even when it seems like violence is absent, for example, we still have not only ideological domination, but also something else, which is economic domination. So there's a very general idea here,
0: perhaps, that we are locked into doing things in certain ways because of decisions that have been made in the past. So we can think about things like critical design theory. So people talk about, for example, the construction of cities. So the yes. construction of cities in certain ways entails the construction of cities in certain other ways and you know so on and so on and so on yeah. through these sort of thousands of years. Uh, we can also think sort of biological metaphors. So there's this idea of niche construction in biology, where an organism will manipulate its environment such as to make itself more likely to reproduce in that environment.
1: Mm.
0: And I'm kind of wondering whether or not you think there's a sort of an analogy there. Yeah. And if you're saying something more specific, right? So like, what is the specific thing that capital does in order to reproduce itself that is not captured by this more general idea that there's a sort of path dependency to the world where certain decisions at certain points entail making certain decisions at certain later points?
1: Well, it's not just a matter of decisions made in the past. It's also a matter of practices done every day, everyday practices. You know, one example of, of that is um, price movements. That's one of the uh, expressions of the, the mute compulsion of economic relations. Of one of the mechanisms through which capital shapes our environment in a certain way, which we have and shape, the, the context within which we make choices. That's not only a result of past uh, decisions, but also of uh, decisions that are taking place right now. When uh, rent, the rent level increases, for example, then we have to, you know, you have to find a way of making more money. In that way, price mechanism is a mechanism of power. I would say.
0: So I want to get to what you think of as the basic conditions of mute compulsion, like the capacity that humans have to exist in as a kind of society that is. Uh, has economic power in mm. at all, but first, before we do that, there's a sort of methodological presupposition that you make, which is that Marx, uh, when he's writing about these kind of things, is not an economist, right? He's a, nor is he, you know, a political economist in the kind of the uh, terminology of his own day. In fact, he's a sort of a critic of the entire enterprise. Why is it so essential that Marx's view is a as a critical one, and what does that mean?
1: First of all, it means that he's not trying, I would say, to explain how capitalism works in the way that we're used to from mainstream economics and also from critical economics, heterodox economics. Instead, he's trying to criticize political economy as a a discipline and the presuppositions of that discipline. And and through that also to articulate a critique of capitalism, which uh, shows how economic categories are forms of expression of relations of domination and power relations. I would say that Marx's critique of political economy doesn't... You can't understand it within the usual division of labor and social sciences between political science and sociology and um, economics, where political science deals with the state and economics deals with the economy and then sociology um, deals with everything else. Um, So he tries to demonstrate how economic relations are social relations. And in capitalism, these relations are relations of domination or power.
0: So instead of the economy being taken as a kind of
1: natural fact, it's shown to be historically
0: produced by a collection of forms
1: of domination. And even the way we understand the relationship between politics and economics or the political and the economic is, is, is very much influenced by how capitalism introduces a certain kind of separation of these two spheres which are not in themselves uh, um, to like you, you can't distinguish between politics and economics in that way in all forms of society that's a particular historical um, result of capitalist relations of production so it's a politicization of the economy yeah. you could say and a historicization of the economy.
0: Yeah. And are those two things the same thing? Polit- politicization of the economy. Yeah, and a I historicization? would say. Yeah,
1: because yeah. historicization historization is to say that this is, you know, this could have been different, and we can do it differently, and that's what politics is about. So one of the most kind of like intriguing aspects of your book, in
0: particular, is that despite this sort of thoroughgoing historicism inside the work, you actually do posit various kinds of. Almost trans-historical aspect to like the human body yeah. itself. So talk to me about like this notion of human nature that appears because when we think about human nature, I think um, we often assume that it's a sort of a conservative notion that it's there to justify a particular form of yeah. brutality and domination.
1: Yes, so, like, hu- yeah. arguments about human nature are often used in political yeah. debates. You know that human nature is. Uh, in, in like this or that and because of that you know it's unrealistic to think that we can have a communist society because humans are by nature eco- egotistical creatures or something yeah. like
0: that they love to compete or in Adam Smith they love to truck and barter and so on
1: yeah right exactly
0: yeah yeah so like my, my question is like how do you construct a notion of human nature because you do have one how do you construct a notion of human nature that doesn't end up determining something quite kind of specific about social reality?
1: Well, so to to jump straight to the conclusion, I basically claim that, uh, or argue that human nature does not entail a uh, a certain form of society. What's specific about the human nature is the absence of necessity, what the British philosopher Kate Sober calls a biological underdetermined, she says that the human being is biologically underdetermined. That means that capitalism does not contradict human nature, and neither does any other form of society or any other mode of production. And... A communist society wouldn't be a realization of human nature, or wouldn't be more like closer to human nature, or anything like that. The, the, the human nature explains what—that's what I try to do in my analysis of uh, the human being and 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 the, the specifically the spe- specificity of the human body and its relationship to the rest of nature. I argue that human. Nature entails a certain openness, which is also like the, the, the space of the political. It means that there is no such thing as a natural form of society. And uh, it's, so it's up to us as a species to find out how to live, which means that it's political through and through. So I reject what I would say are romantic criticisms of capitalism in the name of human nature, because I don't think that human nature entails any, form of, any specific form of society. This is one of the most...
0: Uh, for my money kind of intriguing and like kind of effective moves of the book where it says that rather than use a concept of separation from nature as a way of orienting a politics towards a sort of a, a unity that must be re-established,
1: yeah.
0: um, in fact, it is the fact that there cannot be a more or less natural form of society that makes politics real, right? That, that means that we have to do politics. Um, I want to ask you a bit later about like how then we do orient ourselves, like how mm. then like our ethical impulses or our our sense of a political project can unfold. But um, first of all, I want to kind of stick with this notion of uh, the aspects of the of the human in particular. So we have tool use, we have vulnerability. Um, you mentioned the body. What aspects yes. of the body? Like what are the important salient aspects of the body that allow us to to have this economic domination in the first place?
1: Marx has some very interesting ideas about the importance of tool use for uh, the human relationship with the rest of nature. And uh, so he he, he uh, cites approvingly um, Benjamin Franklin's definition of the human being as a tool-making animal. And Marx speaks of tools as organs, which I think is m- more than a metaphor, actually. One way to develop this insight is to say that in contrast to other species, humans hasn't Evolutionary developed organs that are specifically uh, related to a or related to a specific natural environment. Instead, we have so we don't. Instead of organs functionally uh, um, adjusted to to a certain ecological niche or uh, natural habitat, we have um, we have tools which can be we use tools which can be seen as organs that can be detached from the body and, and developed and centralized and uh, um, as if, uh, you know, birds could take off their- Beak? Beak, yeah. Um, and so the, the, the consequence of that is that, the, that there is no, that there's a, a enormous flexibility in how the human being can relate to its surroundings and that it's in a certain sense, it doesn't really belong anywhere and, or, or another way to put it is that it belongs everywhere. That it can live in many different places because it can, uh, because it can um, adapt its body through the use of tools, among other things. The specific structure of the human body entails an an underdetermin- an indeterminacy in the relationship to its surroundings, which is the basis of history and politics. That's why the reproduction of the human species can take so many different forms and why it's possible for this uh, creature to become entangled in property relations. I
0: quite like the idea that this podcast is being transmitted to our listeners through a sort of detachable beak uh, (laughs) via these microphones and the uh, detachable uh, mouth that uh, lives in the (laughs) speakers they're listening to this through. Um, Tell me about vulnerability. So humans are vulnerable to uh, yeah. destruction. They're vulnerable to uh, the, the aspects of violence. They need uh, to eat. They need yeah, to, yeah. you know, um, they have these kind of yeah. basic met- metabolic needs. Yes. How does this become a fundamental aspect of, of, of humanity? It's not it's not just our capacities, right, that allow us to be enmeshed in economic domination, no. but also the fact that we can't survive alone in the wilderness. Yeah. And
1: so, on. yeah. so I rely a lot on Marx's concept of metabolism which basically is basically just the idea that human beings are natural creatures that has to um, that requires certain inputs natural inputs and produce uh, outputs and is a part of a natural cycle of uh, material um, and uh, well you could say that humans are or humanity or the human species is vulnerable in the sense that it it can um, because of its what I call its corporeal organization with a concept from Marx um, so that what I just talked about the specific structure of the human body and its uh, and the necessity of using tools um, humans can, become entangled in something like mute compulsion. So it's vulnerable to forms of power that wouldn't be able to exist in other species. Um, and um, so, so that part of the book is basically an attempt to explain why such a thing as economic power is even possible.
0: I'm wondering about the focus on the body and to the admission, uh, or perhaps to including this in the body, of our kind of extraordinary cognitive capacities. So I'm thinking, for example, of chimpanzees who are physically not so different from us, who live in communities, and yet who do
1: not have capitalism.
0: They use tools, right?
1: Um, yeah, but they don't use tools in, in the same way as humans. So tell me about that. Like, so yeah. isn't that a difference of so cognitive capacity? Yeah, and and well, it's important that I, I, I don't claim that, which it would be a ridiculous claim to say that only human beings use tools. Uh, that's obviously not true. But nevertheless, I still think it's one of uh, tool use is a defining feature of human beings. Not because other animals um, don't use tools, but because the sh- human tool use is much more complex and and uh, is necessary, not on an individual level, but on a like a species level. Um, so the human species can't survive without using tools. And also humans use tools in a much more complicated way and use tools to to build tools mm. and so on. So, so I think that there's a, although other animals also use tools, I think human beings do so in a very, in another way, and in a much more complex way.
0: I want to quote from your book, economic power inserts itself into the gap between life and its conditions. So there's this sense that um, we can't live immediately hence the tool use, uh, and therefore economic power is a possible, is, is the thing that gets in between yes. the way in which yeah. we live and, and the conditions that we need in order to exactly. be able to live. Yeah. One,
1: one way to explain it is to say that well, all all living organisms uh, have to maintain a metabolism with the rest of nature or with its natural surroundings. And the, because of the specific structure of the human body and the dependency, uh, the tool dependency, the human metabolism is much more fragile than the metabolism of other species, which means that there are more gaps where power can inser- insert itself and other people, other members of the species can insert itself. So, so the human metabolism is, is, a, is a fragile totality where things like property relations and yeah, other people can insert itself in the gaps in that metabolism. By, for example, centralizing control over the tools necessary to uh, reproduce a human community, which is basically like uh, um, monopolizing uh, parts of other people's bodies. And also, of course, um, uh, monopolizing control over land, which is an essential Mm. precondition of human existence. This kind of centralization is
0: true of all hitherto existing societies. Well, I should not say all. I mean, like, it's
1: it's central to... Uh, yeah, that's why class society can exist. Right. So what's specific about capitalism? That's why one part of the species can establish itself as a ruling class. Yeah. But, yeah, so the specific thing about capitalism, one of the specific things about capitalism, if we are talking about power, is that, um, that this... Precarity of the human metabolism has been, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not used, but exploited. Yeah, exploited to a degree we've n- never seen before in human history. So, um, so you could say that it that pre-capitalist modes of production have, uh, or class society, class. Uh, pre-capitalist class societies have tended to rely more on an external power over a, met- a, a metabolic process, where, whereas capital inserts itself in like, in the all the gaps in the human metabolism.
0: So instead of the typical, for example, image we might have of have of uh, medieval Europe in which the Lord um, kind of lets you get on with uh, doing your farming and then comes and takes a tax off yes. the top of that. Yeah. Instead, it's inserted throughout the entire process. Yeah, exactly. So what is this dependence that we have on the market? Like, what is it that we are... Why is it that every time we come back, you know, every time we wake up, we yet again find ourselves uh, with the need to go specifically to the market yes. to uh, make our meet our needs Instead of uh, being able to establish on kind of a, a mass scale uh, independence of that, so how do we become propertyless? I guess that's a historical well, we are, question. But how do we? Yeah. How do we? How is our propertylessness maintained?
1: First of all, there was, of course, as you said, a historical process where a proletariat was created, a class of propertyless people, and uh, every new generations of proletarians are born. Into this world without uh, control over what they need in order to survive, which means that they have to rely on other people or have to sell their labor power or ha- find some way to get access uh, to what they need in order to survive through the mediation of uh, capital. And this is this situation is reproduced, for example, by market pressures. It's simply not possible in in capitalism to quit. The market to to because you that would require that you have so much money that you could live your whole life without having to uh, make any money again, and you know that only happens for a tiny minority. That's and only because other people don't succeed in that or don't or uh, stay propertyless.
0: Yeah, there's a structuralness to failure.
1: Yes, you have to necessarily a huge number of people have to fail. Yeah, so you
0: have these concepts which take from. Robert Brenner, uh, the horizontal and the vertical relations. Can you tell me about what those are and how exactly they kind of mutually reinforce each other and how they um, enact this sort of market pressure stuff that you were talking about a moments ago?
1: Yes, well, um, so you could, one way to explain it is to say that capitalism is defined by two sets of social relations. Uh, one is, the on the one hand, the vertical class relations between uh, capitalists and proletarians. Um, and on the other hand, the horizontal relationships between units of production or actually between market agents. So that's relations within cl- the classes. So it could it's relationships between uh, proletarians who sell their labor power in the market, for example, because they compete against each other. Um, and also relationship between capitals uh, who compete against each other. So, um, and it's it's important to, I think it has the, the, the importance of the uh, horizontal relations have been underestimated in uh, lots of Marxist thought. Um, but it's crucial to see how these two sets of relation mediate each other in order to understand how the power of capital works because, um, well, in a certain sense, the the, the capitalist, the the class class domination in capitalism is a class domination in a stronger sense than pre-capitalist forms of class domination, because usually workers are not subjected to a particular capitalist, but to the capitalist class as such, because it's generally possible for uh, to to you know to quit your job and to find another uh, uh, capitalist who want to exploit you many people in, in capitalism it's quite common to be in that situation where you you know you can choose among a, a certain number of uh, uh, employers so you're not tied to a specific member of the exploiting class in the same way as a m- medieval peasant or a, um, like a, a, s- a slave in antiquity for example um, so and and that's because th- the exploiting class is split into different uh, independent units of production. So, so that's one of the ways in which these two sets of relations mediate each, each other, which means that uh, the capitalist class domination is, is, is an impersonal form of class domination because you're subjected to a class rather than a specific member of that class. So you're a wo- so you're a worker,
0: and then you have these horizontal relationships with other workers, and they are competitive relationships, right? I compete with other yes. workers. Yeah, and, and that's
1: another dimension of the horizontal relationship that competition among workers uh, um, generates uh, price movements in the price of labor power, which downwards. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So and that and that's and that uh, shapes you know the the context that we take choices make choices within. So uh, it forces us to do certain things. You know, if you're, uh, if wages gets lower, then you have to move or, you know, find a new place to live or cut down on something. And
0: I want to kind of um, ring the uh, big complicated concept, klaxon, at this point. I want to talk about real subsumption and its relationship to uh, biopolitics and its relationship to insecurity. So these three concepts seem to me... Uh, quite deeply related in your account. We have this notion of insecurity, uh, which is that we are separated from the means of our own reproduction, and therefore we have to enter into the market. Mm-hmm. Um, that changes quite fundamentally from the early modern period, right, where we get this notion of biopolitics, in which instead of uh, the sovereign power, the, the power that uh, lets us uh, simply lets us live or, or kills us, you know, the king kind of like um, stereotypically, uh, change into a power of nurturing, of kind of a production. So how do these two things work together, first of all? How does the insecurity that capitalism enforces work with this notion that we are being in some ways produced by, paradigmatically, the state, but also by the kind of wider social relations that needs us to function within it in this kind of biopolitical way? How do we match these two up?
1: The parts of my book where I deal with that is not intended as a, it's obviously not an attempt to make some sort of historical analysis. It's just, a suggestion to maybe uh, look at the phenomenon of biopolitics th- through the lens of uh, a Marxist analysis of capitalism, um, and I and, and suggest that and I'm and I draw on the work of Silvia Federici uh, in in that uh, section of the book um, to suggest that the rise of biopolitics uh, was a result of capitalism because uh, capitalism installs such a fundamental insecurity as the ba- at the basic level of the reproduction of life itself, uh, or uh, the life of the population, that the state needs to step in and assume a new role uh, to to make sure that there's a that that there's a, a reproduction that of a reproduction of the workforce, reproduction of the life of the population. So it needs to to manage the life of the population in a new way because uh, because of the extreme insecurity introduced by capitalist relations of production.
0: So you make this claim that um, the people who are probably most associated with biopolitics—that's Michel Foucault and Giulio Agamben—can't yeah. actually complete their projects because they need this yeah, notion of capitalism yes. to underlie it.
1: Yeah. So so my claim is something like they 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 saw something that is. You know, they described something about how the state relates to the life of its population. They, they saw something right. They got something right about that, but they are unable to explain uh, that phenomenon because they, because of their, um, because they don't want to uh, co- combine that with a Marxist analysis of capitalism.
0: And, and the same thing is true of your. Uh, engagement with Foucault's concept of power earlier on. So you say that Foucault's yeah. concept of power, which he understands as the conduct of conducts, yeah. the structuring of. Uh, which behavior, has a lot of
1: good yeah. uh, things, I, I, I. Yeah.
0: But also similarly, you say can't be completed because it lacks this overall social determination, right? It lacks the way in which it understands society as a whole as determining conducts rather than just individual yeah. institutions or micro politics. And of also
1: nice. just that his. his uh, I was about to say reluctance, but I think I need a stronger word. Um, his, uh, his, Antipathy? Uh, <laughs> yes, antipathy <Yeah. laughs> to, to introducing um, questions of property mm-hmm. in his analysis um, made him blind to certain things, and uh, that's a problem in his analysis. But there are, and, and I also briefly discussed that in the book, there are some, I think, some good historical reasons why he wanted to distance him, himself from Marxism in the in, in 1970s France, and uh, some of them I, I actually find quite sympathetic because there were uh, there, w- there was a lot of, um, well, s- Marxist dogmatism in, in that period in France, although there also was a lot of uh, extremely anti-dogmatic Marxist uh, theory going on. So Foucault is always such a controversial figure among Marxists, and a lot of Marxists just... Reject everything from him because he's so, um, because of his attitude toward Marxism. But I think that we should read his his what he says about Marxist and Marxism as a as a critique of certain forms of Marxism in France in the nineteen seventies, rather than a like a rejection of all forms of Marxism.
0: There's a there's a problem that I don't think has been like fully articulated in uh, social science in general. Let's say which is what I try and think about as uh, called the buck-stopping problem. Um, different schools of thought say, so X is happening because of Y, but Y is happening because of Z. When we get to Z, we say, okay, now that's a real cause. That's a real like reason for something to happen. And that's why Y can't be the point we, we have to end up on as our cause. And then we have to say it's Z. And other people come along and they say, no, 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 it's, it's actually Y that's the cause. And that's a real cause. And I wonder how you think about like what is a proper cause in understanding history. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I I'm not sure I understand what you mean, and I'm not sure that I can give an answer to question to that question on such a such a general level. That I think, yeah, maybe we would have to go into. S- a discussion of Aristotelian philosophy here. Uh, if we, I mean, what is a cause? Uh, is that what you're asking? I mean, what is a cause? Uh, is that what you're asking? I'm asking, you, like, what
0: you take as a valid, how do you check that the thing you've arrived at? So, for example, we're saying, okay, Foucault has this account of power, but Foucault's account of power relies on a, a different account, like, or kind of is just the mere surface of a more profound account, which is like Marx's account. And then you know, physicists could come along and say, "Well, you know, Marx's like account is just like a surface of like an yeah. ongoing physical process." I and think so yeah. we have this kind of political question, of like where we stop in our well, analysis,
1: right? I think that I have a very um, pragmatic re- relationship to theory. In, in I mean, pragmatic in the philosophical sense, like uh, it's a question of producing useful concepts and what does it mean. Uh, and I, what does useful mean here? Well, it means useful for understanding whatever you want to understand. So so, so I'm trying to produce... A th- what I try to do in the book is to produce a theory that can help us understand capitalism because ultimately I think that, although I don't think it's, it's definitely not necessary to understand something in order to fight it, but it can sometimes be helpful to understand th- capitalism when we... Uh, when we're trying to abolish it and struggle against it. So so I think that um, the, the, the important question is, or the, the answer to your question is, it, it's, a, it's a question of constructing useful theories for that purpose. What's most useful for understanding the thing we want to understanding and to, to make the changes that we want to make? And so that in that sense, I, I, that's what I mean by a pragmatic uh, relationships of theory. Ultimately, it's a question of of producing useful concepts that can help us do what we want to do. And In this case, that is uh, destroy capitalism.
0: Let's put a pin in the question of pragmatism, and I'll ask you some questions about that in a second. I want to turn to crisis. Yes. What does it do? How does it appear in your account? Um, and what is its utility to capitalism? Because in some sense, the kind of question that you pose on the back of the book, on the blurb, I promise listeners I read more than the blurb of this book. <laughs> it's not apparent perhaps in my questions but I have. The question really that you're trying to answer is why is it that capitalism has persisted? Even though it seems to encounter internable crises. In fact, one could say that the period since 2007 and the beginning of the global financial crisis has been one of essentially just like perpetual turbulence. And it doesn't really seem to me like Since the
1: 1970s actually. Well, this
0: is the this is the long-down argument. So, like, yeah, I mean this or, is Or <laughs> since always, I mean. So why is it that it doesn't its crises don't um, make it fragile or to use sort of a term from um, uh, a theorist who might not kind of uh, generally appear on Devora podcasts anti fragile? Why is it that it gains strength from crisis?
1: Well, um, I, well, it's um, first of all I, I I want to emphasize that I'm not I'm not claiming that crises are nothing but an internal. Reproduction mechanism in capitalism. Um, many many Marxists throughout the history have uh, seen crises as um, as as a, as a situation where it would be easier to overthrow capitalism, and I think that in a certain sense that is that can be true. I mean, crises are often uh, associated with uh, also like a crisis of legitimacy uh, for capitalism and um, crises often result in um, things like uh, downward pressure on wages and higher unemployment rates and so on, and that tends to generate uh, protests and critique of capitalism and so on. So I think that... Yeah, crises are definitely can be definitely a, a danger to capitalism, but if you look at what at the results of the crises in the history of capitalism, it has often been crises has uh, have often been uh, followed by a period of expansion, um, and that's because crises also sets in motion mechanisms which help to restore conditions of profitability and prepare a new round of accumulation. For example, by lowering wages and increasing unemployment, increasing competition among workers, um, increasing the pressure to expand into new markets for capitals, uh, and so on. So that's why uh, crises, I think we should look at, we should understand crises as risky uh, like a, a risky way of um, securing the conditions of a new round of accumulation, and, and and well, capitalism necessarily generates crises, so capitalism undermines itself in a way, but only partially, and it and it has to do that in order to in order to save itself also. So crises are also, so they're not only, but they're also one of the ways in which capitalism reproduces itself. So a really good example from the actual
0: history of capitalism of a crisis turning into a new phase of accumulation is what's called the logistical revolution. Logistical revolution, let me say that again. So
1: yeah, I want to tell you good. what
0: was the significance of this development in the economic power of capitalism and how did it enforce this specifically economic dimension to the power of capital?
1: The logistics revolution is uh, at, started in the 1970s it's like a complex set of uh, deregulation and um, uh, new transport technologies and infrastructural projects uh, all over the world, which made it a lot easier to uh, transport goods across the world. And uh, that means that it made capital much more mobile. So it made it easier to move production, which means that it, 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 made it, it strengthened... Uh, the power of individual capitals over their workers because it made it possible to threaten them with relocating production. Lower transport costs uh, is also a way of fusing labor markets or fusing markets in general so that workers who are located in different areas of the world actually begin to compete against each other. And it also uh, strengthens the power of capital uh, over the state, because it makes it uh, more difficult for states, nation states, to impose regulations, because it's easier for capitals to, to uh, yeah, to relocate production. So, so what the logistics revolution did was to make capital more mobile, and mobility is a is an important weapon for capital. Of course, the, the logistics revolution was partly a result of the crisis tendencies in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, which uh, generated incentives for these processes of standardizations and you know, the standard container and increasing uh, sh- sh- uh, container ship um, size and so on. It's one of the most kind of interesting stories
0: that, for my money at least, sort of combines all the different three aspects of power. So for example, um, lots of the containerization, lots of the uh, demand for a regularization of trade and a regularization of logistics came from the military, right? So yeah. uh, it comes from the problem that the US military has in Vietnam. Yeah. And this is partly the kind of the, the bootloader for this logistics revolution. And of course, there's also the question of how China gets kind of absorbed back into the, the global market, having separated itself off forever yeah. beforehand. But then, once this has happened, and you have this offshoring, it also allows for certain kinds of uh, right-wing nationalists to say, "Look, your jobs have been stolen by you know, the Chinese," oh, quote unquote. Yeah. And then you get this ideological aspect in which the, that's right. it's paradoxically wages can be suppressed even more yeah. by attacking the left. And so there's a real kind of complicated story about power being used.
1: That's a good example of how economic power and ideological power are closely connected, right? Because in, in, the, in my book, I, I focus exclusively on economic power, but of course, it doesn't, in, in, in its concrete ways of functioning, it's not separated from other forms of power, and that's a good example of that. Hmm. One
0: of the very concrete ways in which we are locked into a world, not just through the logistics revolution, uh, is fossil fuel capitalism. And I wanted to kind of yeah. ask about how you think. I mean, lots of the work in the book is uh, refers to Andreas Malm, who's you know, been on the podcast before. I want to think about like how you see fossil fuel capital as a particular kind of infrastructure, locking in a certain yeah. kind of world, and and whether or not you think that's a form of economic power, or should it be like understood slightly differently.
1: You know, capitalism's destructive relationship to nature is not really. I w- I wouldn't call it a form of domination. I I mean, I wouldn't use that term to. Uh, describe uh, capitalism's relationship to nature because i would only use that concept like domination to refer to relationships between uh, human beings but it's but obviously capitalism is incompatible with a stable biosphere and economic power reproduces capitalism and in that way it 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 it, it uh contributes to um, the ongoing uh, climate crisis but One of the ways in which the logistics revolution has enhanced the power of capital is that it changes what it means to how we could imagine uh, transitioning to something else, creating a a non-capitalist or a, a communist mode of production, because it has allowed for a tremendous increase in the international division of labor, which means that there are large areas Around the world that only produces a, a limited number of things because it produces for the, for the market and for the international market. And if you, and, and, and I mean, most people would probably agree that if, if we manage to, um, to, uh, start a revolution and a revolutionary overthrow of capitalism, it wouldn't happen at the same time all over the world. So it would break out in certain areas of the world. And when that happens, uh, we would would need to, as quickly as possible, reorganize production to uh, feed the people in that area and, and to produce whatever we need in that area. And that is a much larger project now because of that uh, international division of labor which has been made possible by the logistics revolution, and that also means that it's we have a much high degree of reliance on fossil fuels and uh, um we're much more dependent on that and and because of the the logistics revolution uh, it's it's much more difficult it would be much more difficult today to transition to or to uh, to end that dependency on fossil fuels in that way, it's 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 yeah, it's built into the infrastructure.
0: I want to. This is. I mean, this is really important. I think. I want to like, kind of get to like a question about the relationship in your work between like structure and agency. Um, so, structure being you know uh, things that are sort of overdetermining, uh, agency being kind of like the possibilities for manoeuvring in, in, inside that. Um, and if I was really sceptical, uh, then I might just say that. The style of theorizing
1: that you're doing is sort of an excuse for losing. Well, it is an attempt to explain why we're we're losing. Yeah. I mean, it it, it is an attempt to uh, contribute to an explanation of why hasn't capitalism collapsed yet? Why is it so difficult to uh, abolish capitalism? One version of this
0: criticism would be that it's sort of politically incapacitating at the level of abstraction that it's posed that it doesn't allow us to produce a kind of political project, right? Whereas if I were to have a much lower level of abstraction, I could say, you know, particularly in the UK, with the Conservative Party being in charge for the last, what, 13 years, I could say, look, it's these decades. They've got names, they've got addresses. Yeah. Like, you can find them. They have the same collection of human vulnerabilities that uh, we were discussing earlier as the basis for economic power. Yeah. And that stimulates a very direct and obvious uh, political project. Yeah. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, what is the relationship between the kind of
1: work that you're doing and the formation of a particular concrete political project? I'm not sure that it's possible to say something general about that, actually. I think it depends on the political context. And I definitely think that the emphasis on the impersonal nature of the power of capital in my book does not entail... That we shouldn't focus on like uh, a specific uh, persons in in concrete political struggles. I mean, I think that my analysis in in the book is completely compatible with, you know, f- for tactical reasons, uh, focusing on very specific uh, persons as uh, class enemies and uh, you know as a, as a as a tactic uh, to um, uh, generate class hatred. Uh, or you know whatever kinds of feelings we need to nourish in in a concrete political struggle. So I don't see. I don't. I don't think there's a direct uh, connection. I. I. I mean. I. I hope that general theories about capitalism, like the one I present in, in my book, can be of use in. Concrete political situations, um, for example, by you know producing concepts that can be used on lower levels of abstractions to analyze particular uh, political situations. As a and 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 in that way, I hope that it can be useful as a part of a, a strategic in producing strategically relevant analyses of concrete situations. But I don't think that we should derive. Um, political strategies from abstract theory. I think it's really important to be to formulate political tactics and strategies on the basis of concrete analyses of concrete situations, to quote Lenin. (laughs) (laughs) Not the person I was
0: imagining you uh, were going to quote that. I want to put to you another criticism uh, that was written about in Jacobin magazine in in the review of the book. This criticism is that there's a distinction often made between power and domination. And you don't make that distinction. You don't have a, an account of the difference between these two things. What that entails is that it doesn't allow us to have a sense of what the legitimate use of power might be, right? It doesn't allow us to have a positive political project. You know, There are questions, for example, what kinds of structures, what kinds of uh, design choices uh, might socialists want to put into place in a future society? Um, and yet it doesn't seem like from the perspective of your work, which doesn't distinguish between domination, mm. which is assuredly bad, and power, which is a more neutral, open category, yeah. doesn't distinguish, therefore, like how do we orient ourselves like and we've already excluded, of course, uh, as we talked about earlier, this orientation towards like overcoming the split with nature, right so that's not an orientation we can use. So like how do we uncover the kind of the um the first sparks sort of like political projects themselves from this? abstraction or, or do, do we not as you were mentioning maybe a moment ago
1: it's true that i don't uh, distinguish between power and domination in the book because the power of capital is always a form of domination and that's what i'm trying to uh, analyze the power of capital that does not entail a denial of the possibility of distinguishing between power and domination and i i think it's it it makes sense to make such a distinction, as and as you said, power is a more is a broader concept, and power can also be um, something that is legitimate. Well, I think my answer would just be that that's not what I'm concerned with in my book. You know, I'm concerned with uh, the power of capital, so I'm only concerned with domination, and that's another project to try to formulate uh, uh, something about how uh, power could be. L- legitimately exercised in a communist society, for example. I think, um, you know, I I'm, and I'm not sure I have a good answer to that question, but I think it's an important question and an interesting question, and I hope that someone will write something about it. <laughs> I hope so too. Um, this is the question that makes everyone
0: squirm and uh, deny that their theories are really theories, which is that I want you to kind of make some predictions. What is it that you think will happen? Uh, we're in a seemingly perennial crisis. Um, if you can't talk about this moment of the beginning of capitalism, can we talk about the moment of the end of capitalism? Are there conceivable off-ramps from the system of domination that we've got ourselves locked into? Is it possible to conceive of them you know, uh, having different genres? Could we distinguish between some sort of Peculiar AI apocalypse, uh, climate change breakdown leading to a disintegration of capitalism, or indeed revolution. Like, how do you see the future panning out? Or, like, if, if not to make concrete predictions, like, can you at least distinguish between the kinds of ways in which the economic power of capitalism could be, if not overcome, deliberately by human action in the form of revolution? Yeah, disintegrated.
1: I think. Um, well, I'm. I'm not a. I'm not a fan of. Uh, the kind of- crisis theories that uh would argue that capitalism has a ten that capitalism necessarily will will necessarily break down because of internal economic mechanisms uh I don't think that's true um But I think that it is impossible for capitalism to reproduce its natural conditions of existence. And for that reason, I think that if we don't succeed in abolishing capitalism and establishing something else, then uh, climate breakdown is probably the most uh, realistic scenario. I didn't mean that to sound pessimistic. I don't think that it's a it's a uh, likely scenario, climate breakdown. I'm just saying that it's. I think it's either revolution or uh, chaos. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping for the revolution, of course.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Thank uh, you. *Mute
1: Compulsion, a Marxist theory of the economic power of capital,
0: is available now from Verso. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media
1: forward slash support or face the consequences.